This is episode 547 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. The greatest deception in the church is regarding what it means to be saved. I mean, simply stated, it's all about regeneration. I mean, what is it? How do I know if it's taking place? Is praying the sinner's prayer enough, or is something else needed? And the answer is yes. If praying the sinner's prayer leads to regeneration, great. Salvation has taken place, and you are now a new creation in Christ. But if praying the prayer doesn't lead to regeneration, then all you did was say a prayer, and prayers don't save. Do you see the issue? Can you understand where the deception is coming from? Good. Then join us today as we, as the scriptures say, examine ourselves as to whether we are in the faith, which only happens at regeneration. Test yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? That's from 2 Corinthians 13.5. And nobody wants to find themselves disqualified, which, by the way, means fraudulent, unapproved, unworthy, spurious, worthless, or corrupted. Again, nobody wants to find themselves disqualified. Nobody. As I've shared with you before, we live in deceitful times. One of the, I guess, hallmarks of the end times is deception. Deception globally and deception individually. As a matter of fact, in, uh, in 2 Thessalonians, it talks about the fact that the Antichrist will come and the Lord will send those people who obviously have rejected Christ a strong delusion to believe the lie. Nobody knows what that strong delusion is. Many people have said, well, maybe it's the delusion that the Antichrist is Jesus. That's a salvation issue. Maybe it's the delusion that I don't have to follow a set of standards and commands of God that fight against my independence and my pride and my flesh. Maybe I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Again, that's a salvation issue. Maybe it's, as we talked about in Romans chapter 1, maybe it's this depraved mind that our culture has decided to name narcissism. And if you remember, I don't know, a month or so ago, we talked about these three stages that a culture goes and a person goes when they really get to the point where they're seriously, totally lost. And uh, it begins, of course, with sexual promiscuity, and then God gave them over to homosexuality, and we talked about how our culture's that way. And then it moves to the third phase, which is a depraved mind. And as I shared with you, every one of those attributes of a depraved mind, unloving, unforgiving, uh, no grace, you know, prideful and, and wicked and evil, every one of those traits of a depraved mind is what our culture is experiencing today in this word we call narcissism. As a matter of fact, I believe that narcissism are really, that's, that's what we call it today. What the Bible calls it is a depraved, debased mind. A depraved and debased mind is almost like a virus that is going out unchecked among Christians who aren't really Christians and non-Christians, and it seems like they're getting worse and worse and worse. Because the only thing that stands between someone having a depraved mind is the only thing that can be different is the fact that we're regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. True Christianity, true salvation is the only antidote for what it's talking about here, this, this deception that's going on. Look what happens at the end times. They're asking Jesus, of course, when will you come? When will you build the temple back? Give us some, some clues about your return, and here's what he says. Take heed that no one deceives you. Why? For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You know, it doesn't say wars and rumors of wars, doesn't say the COVID-19 virus, doesn't say government tyranny or taxation without representation or anything else we want to claim. Jesus said that what's going to happen is deception. He begins the warning in Matthew with deception. And then it gets worse because we go from deception to now false prophets and false Christ that came to claim to be Jesus or speak for God. We get to verse number 11 and 12. And he says, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. 
These are people that will stand up and say, no, this is the way to God. This is this high, wide road that leads to destruction. I, let me tell you what God said, and this is how God really is. And because of lawlessness will abound, and people will have unchecked moral, spiritual fortitude, they'll have this debased, depraved mind, the love of many will grow cold, which is the hallmark of being a narcissist. You don't love anybody but yourself. You don't listen to anybody but your own voice in your own head. And then it gets worse. We go from false prophets now to false Christ. And I want you to see how intense this is. We go to verse 23 and 24 of the same chapter. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. Why? For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonder to deceive. Well, not us. We're, we're too smart. If possible, even the elect, even those sealed by God. And Jesus said, look, I want you to know I'm telling you this beforehand. Every one of these has to do with salvation. When someone stands up and says, I am the Christ, and wants you to follow them, or this is the way to heaven, or this is how salvation works, or this is what a Christian looks like, or this is all you have to do to come to faith in Christ, is just believe some historical facts and live any way you, that you want to. These are all salvation issues. And it deals with the fact that at the end times, there's going to be many people who think they're saved, but aren't. We got Roberta's salvation celebration service, and it led me to really think about the deception we have regarding salvation and the importance of us understanding exactly what salvation is all about, which leads to one question. And I don't want you to just blow this off. Oh, yeah, I know I'm saved. Well, how do you know you're saved? Man, I went down vacation Bible school. I was nine. It's a good night. I've been in church my entire life. I mean, look, hey, if I'm not saved, then nobody's saved. Have you experienced, experienced regeneration? Not believe some facts about Christ, but have you experienced him? Salvation is an experience. It's something that you die and are raised to a newness of life. He doesn't make us better. He doesn't season us with a little bit of righteousness. We're actually new creations, totally new creations. I started looking at this and started thinking about a couple questions and answers. If I were to start with you and I asked you this question, how do you know that you're saved? How do I know that I'm saved? Uh, I said a sinner's prayer. I even wrote it down in my Bible. I know that uh, I'm saved because I remember walking down the aisle and some pastor shook my hand. I remember when I got baptized. I know I'm saved because of what? Externals? Because of something I did? Someone that told me something? I mean, is there a change in my life? Have I experienced the Holy Spirit? Do I, does his spirit bear witness with my spirit that I am a child of God? Do I know I'm saved more than anything else in life? Have I experienced regeneration? I mean, Jesus laid out some of the proofs of salvation, and they were all external. And then later on, he started laying out some of the internal ones. So let's look at the external evidence of salvation first. Number one, it's a radically changed life. Is your life completely, absolutely completely different than it was before? Or is your life somewhat better than it was before? Since, I don't know, for the last 10 years, I've, and this didn't come up with me, I actually think the Lord gave this to me. I asked you um, to look at your own life individually, your life, not anybody else's, not some finite standard everybody's trying to rise to, just your life. Comparing, you know, let's assume it has to do with, you know, your physical fitness. I want you to think back when you were in your best physical shape of your entire life. Do you remember when that was? Okay, let's call that a 10. I've never been in better physical shape than I was at that particular time. Maybe I was a senior in high school. Maybe it was in my 20s. Maybe it was, a, you know, who knows, when I was a young kid. I mean, who knows when it was? It's different for everybody. But for you, when is the 
best physical shape you were at. Uh, I, I, I remember that. I've got that in my mind. We're going to just call that a 10 or a 100 or whatever you want to give it as a metric. Now compare your physical shape now to what you were then and see where you are. Well, I'm a 6, a 4, an 8. So in other words, there was a point in time when you were in better shape than you are now. Yes. And so we see this gap between these two. And if the assumption is we want to get back at least in the best shape we were, we see how many, how far we are from the goal that we have already attained at one point in our life. Make sense? None of us would have any problem with that. It's just a metric to determine where we have been and where we are. Maybe some of you would say, oh, I'm in the best shape of my life right now. Would you say that? I'm in the best shape of my life right now. Good. Excellent. You're 10. Hopefully tomorrow you'll be in better shape and that'll be a new 10. Make sense? So spiritually, I've asked you the same question for 10 years. 10 years. Spiritually. Think about the time when you were closest to the Lord. When you had such a vibrant relationship with him. When you experienced him in such a profound way that he was first on your thoughts and, you know, Everything about it, it was like the incredible time with him. Remember when that was. It's either when I first got saved. It's either when I came back from a mission trip. Maybe it was six months ago. Maybe it's today. Well, whatever that time was in your life, let's consider that a 10. The closest you, you, not everybody, but just you, have been to the Lord. And then where are you in regard to that now? Are you at least as close to him as you have been in the past and I've asked that question to hundreds of people, hundreds of people. And I can really count on maybe two hands the people that have said, uh, oh, I'm closest to the Lord than I've ever been. And some of those people, I know their life and they're lying. Most people say, I'm not. And I haven't been for a long time. Why? Why? I mean, surely there must be some sort of desire that we have to sacrifice and, and count the cost and, and grow closer to him. Because the first external sign of salvation is a changed life. Spiritual fruits, love and peace and joy and long-suffering and sacrifice and giving and, and you know, wanting, to, wanting to please the Lord and all those things that don't come with the flesh, all those things that Christ puts in us and people can look at us and see the difference. The change in us should be so dramatic that it's the difference between, as Jesus said, light and darkness, or death and life. It's not, I'm a little bit better than I used to be, but I still have some sin I hold on to, and God is okay with that because he grades on a sliding scale. Yeah, that's why Jesus died, to not make us perfect and complete and like him, to make us like us only a little bit better so that we don't do the horrible things we used to do, but we're pretty much okay living a life of carnality. You never see that in scripture. I started looking at life-changing events when Christ would come and redeem somebody and they experienced regeneration, a changed life just in the, in the New Testament, and it was profound. You know, you got the woman at the well, you got the prodigal son, Zacchaeus, all those people at Pentecost that got saved, Cornelius and Paul and Lydia and the Philippian jailer, and every single person that had an encounter with the gospel, their lives were radically altered in a profound way. It was no longer, well, I just got saved, so I'm going to continue doing what I want to do, living where I want to live, doing the things that I want to do with the same friends and same entertainment and same things that I enjoy doing. However, I know that I'm saved because why? I said a prayer. I got baptized. I grew up in church. I've, you know, taught Sunday school or been on mission trips. I mean, all that's good. But it's a, an experience with Christ, the regeneration that changes everything. Remember, when Jesus first introduced salvation to Nicodemus, he used the phrase born again, not washed, not made clean, not, you know, try to get rid of your old garbage and, and, and adhere to some social mores of religion, say a sinner's prayer, go to church, read your Bible. Don't say any of that kind of stuff. He said it was born again. It means completely changed. It's not a, um, 
you know, renovating your own life and making you better. It's putting everything aside. He never promised to make us better. He promised to put us to death and raise us to a new life. I'm always amazed when people tell me, you know, hey, I just got saved. Really? So what's different? What do you mean what's different? What's, what's different? I, I, I don't know. I just, I, you know, I'm, I don't want to go to hell. And it seemed like a good idea. And we kind of pitch it that way, you know, just, just, you know, ask Jesus to come into your life and try him out for two weeks. And if it doesn't work, you know, we'll show you it's better. I mean, it's ridiculous stuff that we do. You, you make a decision to follow Christ. It's not a decision. It's a transformation. It's regeneration. It's a change. He didn't make us better. He made us new. Listen, you've heard this verse a hundred times. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you say, hey, I'm saved, I know I'm saved, Uh, Christ came into my life, I've been in church my whole life, and I got a certificate that says I was baptized, okay, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I I don't even know what that means. Well, it really means this. It means everything in the past is gone. Everything is gone. Your desires, your, your lust, your, how you define yourself, everything is gone. Behold, everything now is new, has become new. It's not like I was failing the exam about salvation and I was only scoring in the 60s. And then all of a sudden I got saved and now I'm 73. And so that's a passing grade. So hallelujah, things are one. It doesn't work that way. Everything is gone. The old man, gone. The battle with the flesh takes place continually, but you have been inhabited by the Holy Spirit. God himself lives in you. Do you think that would have a profound impact on every area of our life? Or does it not anymore? We just, is it just theology and not really experience? It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to experience. Watch this verse. It's rather profound. Therefore, if, it also means sense or because in the Greek. If or sense or because anyone. There's no person here more deserving than others. Make it personal. Put your name there. If I, if Steve is in Christ, if I am saved, if I have a relationship, not just a God that I go to his temple and and pray to, but a relationship with Jesus Christ, if he actually lives in me, what would happen? If anyone is in Christ right now, present tense, not in the past, not in the future, right now, if Christ is in you, you are a new creation. Look at the word new here. It means qualitatively new. It's original, one of a kind. It's never been a person like this new creation, this new thing that God creates. Creation, of course, means an object that is brought into existence by God. If anyone is in Christ, you are a one-of-a-kind new creation that he's made of you. It's not you getting better. It's not you seasoned with a little grace and mercy. It's not you trying real hard. You are an absolute transformed new person. You were dead and you were raised to a newness of life in the image of Christ. His thoughts, your thoughts. We have the mind of Christ. His wants, your wants. His desires, your desires. This is what the Bible says happens when someone is saved. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I don't know what that means Can you define that a little bit different? Sure. Old things have passed away. The old life, my wants, my desires, my flesh, what makes me happy, what makes me feel good, the things that I think I should do, my sincerely held convictions, you know, my my wisdom, my logic. I mean, even the best that I can do is filthy rags compared to God. Old things, everything that defined who I am is passed out of existence, no longer functions. It is gone. It is dung and rubbish, Paul calls it. Okay, then what do I get in place of that? Behold, 
all things. That's the word pas. It's one of the words you need to, to memorize in the Greek. Each, every, the whole, and entirety. The idea of oneness without exception. There's no area of your life that is not included in all things. Every aspect of your life is all things. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. New is the same word we had earlier. Have become. It means to begin to be, to come into existence, something that didn't exist. You were one way. You came to Christ, and he created you into something that never existed before, a brand new person. Everything about the old person is done away with, and now the new person is here. Here's what happens to most people. Hey, I, I, I'm 38 years old or, or 42 years old or however old we are. I've spent my entire life by my own wits making it in this world. When I get really depressed, I eat, I drink, I smoke, I watch stuff on television, I do whatever I want to do. And, you know, I'm, I'm striving to define myself by the money I make or the house that I have or whatever's transitory in this world right now. And now I got saved. And I'm so excited, I'm willing to, to sacrifice all of that. And, and then all of a sudden, I, I fall back to my own patterns because Christ isn't enough because maybe, maybe I adopted a religion rather than experiencing a transformation. Quite honestly, you know, we, we have a battle with our flesh, but it's a ridiculous battle when we rely on God himself living inside of us. So, how do we know? How do we know that we're saved? You know, we've got, these, we've got these external proofs, and then there's an internal proof. I want you to look at uh, Matthew chapter 7, and I want you to see what Jesus says closing out the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a salvation passage. Here's what he says. Enter by the narrow gate. Why? Because wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. You've got this super highway over here and this small little path with a turnstile because you can't take anything with you as you cross over. And both, on both paths, there's big signs that say this way to eternal life. That way says you can be anything you want, do anything you want, live any way you want. It doesn't really matter that God will be your best friend. God will season your life. God will give you your best life now. You don't have to have him change you about anything. All you have to do is adhere to some historical facts and try to live not nearly as bad as the lost world out there. Somehow in your behavior, stay between these perceived parameters we put up of Christian behavior. That's the wide path. Everybody wants to go there. The narrow path, very few that find it because it means surrender. It means yielding everything to him. It means giving it all to him. It means dying and being raised to a newness of life. Well, what, what about my children? They belong to the Lord. What about my future? It belongs to the Lord. What about my money? What about the things that I want to do? What about, you know, making my name in this world out there? What about all my friends on social media? What about what I want to watch on TV or how I want to live my life? They belong to the Lord. You are a slave, a slave, a bond slave of him. You were bought with a price. You no longer belong to yourself. And unless regeneration takes place, that is the hardest thing to live by because you're trying to do it in the flesh. Someone who claims to be a Christian and lives like the world, even lost people can see how hypocritical that is. And it's, it's a terrible way to try to live. Let me continue reading. Verse 15. Beware, beware of false prophets. Oh, oh. So we're to enter by the narrow gate, but now we're supposed to be beware of false prophets who are probably telling us to try to enter by the wide gate. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly. They are ravenous wolves. Well, how will we know the difference? You'll know them by their externals. You'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by the way they think, the way they act, the way they, they handle their money, the way they handle their pride and their, their arrogance and their anger. You'll know it by them. They'll reflect not God in their nature. You will know them by their fruits. I mean, we all know that. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No, even so, every good tree bears good fruit 
but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Listen to this. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, they will be known, and so will we. When regeneration takes place, the fruits that you bear will be good fruits. That's the natural outflow of who you are. Will you mess up? Yes. Will one of your branches fall off? Yes. But if you're regenerated in the image of Christ, when you sin, you're miserable. You're convicted about it. You want to get out of that pressure the best you can. There's no way. There's no way that you can live a habitual life of sin if you've been regenerated because the pressure and the conviction of God who lives in you will be so great, it will make you miserable. You ever been there? I have. But what what if regeneration didn't take place? What if I'm just trying really hard to be a Christian? And then there's, that, there's not that conviction. And if there is, I can stifle it down because there's no Christ living in me. There's just the idea of Christ living in me. I mean, how does that work? All right, Steve, so what happens when someone truly gets saved? I mean, what is, what is it like? I, I, I know there should be an external change, but before there can be an external change, there has to be an internal change. Something has to happen on the inside. And what is that? And how can I know for sure that that eternal change has taken place, because if not, I'm just being deceived as thinking I'm saved by going to church on Sunday and reading my, my utmost for his highest and you know, giving a little money to charity. And, you know, but still, my life is all about me. H- how does that work? I shared this with you a number of years ago when we went through the book of Romans. I want to show you this again. There is an order of salvation that's laid out doctrinally in the Scriptures. We're not aware of all of these when we first come to Christ. It's only after we study some that other things become apparent. There's what's called election, where God chose you in him before the foundation of the world. You and I aren't aware of that until after we have been chosen, after we're saved, we recognize it, and we're looking at eternity this way and stop and look at Ephesians and other places in Scripture and turn around and go, wow, I didn't make a decision to follow Christ. It's not all about me. It's all about him. And then I look back, and how did that process take place? Well, there's something called an effectual call, where God begins moving in my life, and God begins calling me to himself. And like my favorite passage in Acts 13 that deals with that, they preached the gospel, and those who were ordained to eternal life believed. And those who weren't ordained to eternal life didn't. So we see this election and this effectual call, those are doctrinal issues that we learn later on in our spiritual life. But what takes place when salvation really is manifest is something called regeneration. And regeneration is when God puts a new life in us. He changes our nature. We're dead. We're risen to a newness of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to live within us. Everything has changed. All things are old things have passed away. Now, all of a sudden, all things are new. The way we view life, the way we view our circumstances, everything is new. Matter of fact, what I want to do is I want to live my life according to his word and not according to my own feelings. And the only way that takes place is after regeneration. What we're aware of is conversion. Conversion is when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we say the sinner's prayer. But if you think about it, the Bible says that there's no one who seeks after God, no, not one, and you don't have the faith. You will never seek after God unless regeneration takes place first. He gives you the faith that you place in him. This is when we become aware of salvation. Oh yeah, I remember uh, um, he asked me if I wanted to get saved and gosh, yeah, I don't want to go to hell. Nobody wants to go to hell. He's a really compelling pastor and the music was really incredible. So I walked down that aisle and I gave my life to Jesus and he asked me some questions. Do you believe, and you've heard this a hundred times, Jesus Christ is the son of God? Yes. Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you believe he was buried, raised on the third day, ascended into heaven? Do you believe he's coming back in glory? Yes. Satan knows all that stuff too. Do you want to give him your life? Sure. Confess your sins? Absolutely. And maybe regeneration takes place and maybe it doesn't. That's a sovereign act of God. In my own life, I said that prayer 200 times over a 10-year period before God, I was making deals with him the whole time, before God decided that 
I accepted him on his terms, not my terms, not the church's terms, not what an evangelist tells you, on his terms. And his terms are always all or nothing. All or nothing. Light and darkness. If you're in the middle, hot and cold, and you're lukewarm, it makes him nauseous. Light and darkness. Death and life. Good fruit, bad fruit. Wide road, narrow road, in or out. That's exactly what salvation is all about. As you study scripture, you realize that as soon as I got saved, I was justified. Where all of a sudden now God doesn't hold my sins against me and he sees me as righteous in his eyes because of the imputed blood of Jesus Christ. I also find out from Romans chapter 8 that I'm adopted as his child. I'm now a child and if a child an heir, a joint heir with Jesus. And then we begin the sanctification process. This is where we try to live according to what's taking place in us, our new nature in the world out there. Sanctification. I'm going to try to live a godly life. It continues. If you're truly saved, you'll always be saved. Well, do you believe once saved, always saved? No. All depends on how you define salvation. I believe truly saved, always saved, because many people that I know who claim to be saved and then apostatize or deconstruct their faith or decide, you know, they're just going to kind of go their own way. You know, the Bible talks about that they no longer walked with us because they were never part of us in the first place. It's not adhering to a, a set of moral codes or laws or commands. It's a regeneration that takes place. Death is part of the salvation process, exactly what happened to Roberta. Roberta moved to step nine where she died and she moved into the presence of the Lord. And then, of course, we had this glorified body and, and you know how that goes. Make sense? So where does the deception come in? Maybe for some of you. Where does it come in? It comes in at the point of regeneration. Watch this supernatural act of our salvation, if you think about it. Election, the effectual call, justification, adoption, all those doctrinal issues you never experience. You don't experience your ado uh, adoption. You just know it's true. You don't experience God's uh, foreknowledge and election of you. You just know that it's true. These things you never experience personally. What you do experience is regeneration, and you do experience sanctification, which is living out your regenerated life here. Both conversion and sanctification, both saying the sinner's prayer and trying to live the Christian life can be faked. It can be, it can be done in the flesh. It's only regeneration that allows that to happen for real. Make sense? Everything else is something that, um, everything else is something that can be faked. And I'm not saying we're purposely trying to fake it. I think people think they really are saved without regeneration and they're trying to live the Christian life and can't. And so you just give up and you just say, I'm, I'm a six. I'm going to stay a six. Leave me alone. And we think not only if you were regenerated, that's highly displeasing to the Lord, but that's about the best we can do trying to live a Christian, a non-Christian life, acting like a Christian in the flesh. Watch this. We've got election, the effectual call. I'm just going to do the first eight of these. Sanctification, of course, is this outward external evidence of salvation, trying to live the Christian life. Watch this. Some of these involve God alone. Some of these involve you. God's effectual call of you, it's all of God. You have, you had, you had, there's nothing you can do about that. That's not yours. It was something, a gift given to you. And as you're called, all of a sudden, God begins that effectual call. And he starts wooing you to himself. And all of a sudden, the scriptures start making some sense. And all of a sudden, you have this desire for God. I want to know more. I want to learn more. Hey, tell me about this joy that you have going through the same turmoil I am. Regeneration, it's a sovereign act of God. And the requirements of regeneration are based on his terms, not yours. I learned that over a 10-year period. I wanted God on my terms. God says, no, it's only on his terms, all or nothing. Death to life. Not, you know, let me keep this and this and this. And, and I think this is a pretty good part of me. I, I want to do that. These are the things that I want to do. God, can I, can I be your slave and yet hold on to these personal rights of my own? No, no, everything. And when I got to the point I was willing to receive him on his terms, I was changed. I was definitely 
regenerated. I had an experience. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I've been changed. When it comes to faith and conversion, the sinner's prayer, uh, that's something you do. That's something you do. I did it 200 times. I see people that, you know, I, I prayed to prayer when I was nine. I prayed it again when I was 14. I prayed it again when I was 21. I mean, did it not take? No, no, obviously it didn't. Because what you're doing is you want the goodie bag of Christianity without the cost, without the sacrifice. Remember what Jesus said, count the cost. Count the cost. It means you get everything of God for everything of you. He doesn't give you everything of him for a tip. I tried that for 10 years, over 200 times, in a myriad of different churches and various religious persuasions. He doesn't respond that way. Regeneration doesn't take place. I can think I'm saved. I can say I'm saved. I can act like I'm saved somewhat, but inwardly, I know I'm not. It has to be something better than this. Justification, if salvation takes place, an act of God. Adoption, an act of God. Sanctification, oh, well, if you're not saved and you think you are, then that's all on you, and we fail miserably. Fail miserably. We have the same habits as the world has. We don't care about that. We want the world to love us. We want to be affirmed by the world. And the Bible says friendship with the world, that's philios, an acquaintance of being a buddy with the world is hatred and enmity towards God. How can you do that? Because regeneration never took place. We brought you in. We told you what you needed to do. You did it, but there's been no change of nature in your heart. Perseverance, you know, if you're not saved and you think you are, it's a pretty tough deal. Uh, if by some chance regeneration does take place, then God works with you on sanctification and works with you on perseverance. But the key to all this is, is re regeneration. Am I making sense? So what is regeneration? Simply this. It's a simple act of God where he puts his nature in you. It's a mystery. We don't even know how it happens. It's something that God does. You pray. You know, God consummates a relationship and his choice in you from eternity past. All of a sudden, you may feel uh, this thing that happens in you, but all of a sudden, it's like these scales fall off your eyes and you see life differently. His word now becomes not just Bible verses that we don't understand. His word becomes something alive. Hear testimony of so many Christians. Yeah, when I first got saved, I loved God's word. What about now? I don't even know where my Bible is. How is that possible? How is that possible if regeneration takes place? I mean, do you become unregenerate? Does all of a sudden it's okay to be changed in a nature that you feast on his word because you're like Christ and then you're not anymore? I mean, how is that possible? And yet the church today, especially in America, is like that continually. There's tons of scriptures that talk about this inward evidence of salvation, an inward evidence. I want to show you just one, and I want to ask you if this happens to you. Has this happened to you? And here's the passage, Romans 8, 16. Simple passage. It says, the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, it's emphatic. The Spirit himself, this, the big guy, the guy that lives in you, the third person of the Trinity, the one that is fully God in every aspect, the Spirit emphatically himself bears witness with our spirit to tell us we are children of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our human spirit. So um, what is the... What does bear witness mean? You can look it up yourself. It means to testify, to witness, to confirm, to provide supporting evidence. How do you know you're saved? It's because the Holy Spirit confirms that with you. The Holy Spirit provides supporting evidence in your life that you truly belong to God. We see some of that in spiritual fruit. We see some of that in changed desire. I mean, you're a totally changed guy. Uh, so what did this Jesus do to you? It totally changed me. I was blind, now I see. That's all I know. I was lame, now I walk. I was lost, now I'm found. I was dead, now I'm alive. 
I was in bondage and now I'm free. Well, how do you know? Well, you're seeing the evidence of it in my life and the Holy Spirit is confirming that, testifying that to me, giving me supporting evidence that that really took place. Not that you're loved by God, but that you are children of his. How does he do that? How has he done that to you? What has he done? How has he revealed himself and bore witness with your spirit that he really belongs to you? Um, um, I, uh, well, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't think he has. I mean, I know I'm saved because why? The preacher told me I was saved. I said the sinner's prayer. I even cried, you know, so, okay. Um, uh, and I used to do, I used to be different than I am now, but that's just because, you know, life's hectic right now. And has the Holy Spirit ever, ever testified and bore witness with your spirit that you truly are a child of his? It's happened to me. Concretely, it happens to me. It should happen to you. If you truly belong to him, there's, a, there's an interaction that takes place here. There's a, there's a, a conduit. There's, a, there's a, a conversation that takes place. There's a oneness and a, and a knowing. It's not just up here. You know, I believe in Jesus. It's down here. I trust him. I exalt him. I love him. I don't want to do anything to offend him. Up here, I don't really care how it affects him. I want to do what I want to do, but not as bad as I used to be. Down here, everything changes. And it only takes place at regeneration. Regeneration has got to change your nature. When the old one dies and a new man is born again and the Holy Spirit lives in you for this to ever take place. Paul just throws it out there. Like it's something we all should know. The Spirit himself, mm, gosh, the Holy Spirit, ooh, yeah, bears witness with your spirit that you are children of God. Then it goes on to talk about, and if children, heirs, and if heirs, joint heirs. How is that, how is that possible? If Christ confirmed that to you, what did, uh, what did he say? How do you know? How is that experience, because it is an experience, how does that experience of the spirit to your spirit, how has that changed your life from then to now? From then to now. Think about it. If we, were, if we had a group of lost people here who didn't know anything about God or Christianity or anything, and we told them that the essence of the Christian life is the fact that God himself, God who created the universe, God who is beyond comprehension, God who slung everything into existence would actually not only humble himself in, the, uh, in a, a little baby born in a manger to die for our sins, but he and all that power will actually come and abide and live in you forever. You think that would go, wow, I guess that'd be kind of cool. Have God live in me. Huh? That means I'm a tabernacle. I'm a, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. That means like in the Old Testament times where the people wouldn't even come around because the shine of glory fell in the temple and Moses would go in and come out and his face would kind of glow and the people were so afraid of the power of God because it was so majestic and it pointed out their sin. Oh, that that's what I would become? That, that I'd have that purifying light living in me forever? Yes, if you're regenerated. If you're not regenerated, it's a really cruel game. It's a horrible game because it means you're trying to live that kind of life without the king and the life living in you. And it is the hardest. It's, it's ridiculous. Just stop. Stop. Because it only leads to failure and frustration because you can't do it in the flesh. You can't. And when you claim to be a Christian and live like the world, you become something that works against the Holy Spirit inhabiting those people who are truly his. Cold and hot in the church in Laodicea. And no, we're just going to be lukewarm, right in the middle, kind of okay. World doesn't bother us. God doesn't bother us. We're kind of fine like we are. And it nauseated Christ to the point of vomiting. Do you remember? So if my life really hasn't changed, and we're not talking about getting a little bit better, 
going from a 73 to an 85. We're talking about not even taking a test anymore because you're done. You're raised to a newness of life where your friends and your neighbors and your, your parents and your spouse can see this change in you. If that hasn't taken place, if others can't see this Holy Spirit, God himself who cannot be contained inside of you, shining out, as Jesus said, like living water. So what, what would the... What would that say about regeneration? Did it really take place or, or not take place? Am I just, am I just a, a cultural Christian or a Christian? Oh, no, no, I'm a carnal Christian. I believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives within me. I just choose to live carnally. It's a very popular today phrase to excuse that. It, it, how does that work? I mean, I mean how does that work? That we have the Holy Spirit living in us and we're just going to continue living our life of uh, of lukewarmness and haphazardness day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and never be convicted about it, never be bothered about it, at least not convicted or bothered enough to do anything about it. What does that say about the Holy Spirit living in us? What does that say about having a changed nature that all things, old things are passed away, behold, all things are now created and have become new? I don't know if this is for any of you in here, but Jesus said, when he gave some rather direct teaching, he said that um, uh, you need to count the cost and you need to have ears to hear. You know, if this is you, it all can be changed today. It can all be changed today. Regeneration is not something God holds back for us from us. The only reason why we have chosen not to be regenerated is because we've chosen not to yield ourselves to him. Because you must die. You must die in order for him to live. The key to the Christian life is not pride and arrogance and leading. The key to the Christian life is submission and humility and yielding my rights, whatever those are, to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because everything begins and ends with regeneration. That's why, this is the last passage I'm going to show you, that's why we are commanded to search ourselves, to examine ourselves, to make sure that regeneration took place. I will go back to verse 21 of Matthew chapter 17. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who will? But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's, a, that's an external. Does the will of my Father. It means my life is not to be spent my way. My life is to be spent like Christ his way. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. That's gnosko. I never, I never knew you. I had an intimate experiential relationship with you. Regeneration never took place. You did a lot of good things, and you faked it really well, and you were a very good church-going religious American. But I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never had a relationship with you, Gnosko. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock of salvation, confirmed by regeneration." But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will liken to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it fell and great was its fall. Great was its fall. Last passage. It says, examine yourself as to whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you are disqualified. I want you to show what, uh, I want you to look at this warning, and I want you to see how personal it is, implied. You examine yourself. I'm not to examine you. Uh, your neighbor's not to examine you. You have to do this yourself. I don't know if regeneration is taking place in your life. Only you know that. And if you're not sure, examine yourself. Make sure you examine yourself as to what? to whether you are in the faith. You truly belong to Christ. Regeneration has taken place. That you love him, you serve him. He's number one on your list. Not 
a priority, but the priority of your life. You examine yourself as to whether you're in the faith. You test yourself. Put yourself to the test. Make sure. Why? Because do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? And if you don't know that, the reason why you wouldn't know that is because you're probably disqualified. That you're deceived into thinking he is, but he's not. Examine yourself. One of the things that you're really supposed to do every time we take the Lord's Supper. Examine yourself. Make sure your life lines up with him. Here's what it means. Implied, you examine yourself. Examine, you can look the words up yourself. It means to put to the test to determine whether the nature of something is good or bad. Whether the Holy Spirit is living in you. Whether you have a heart for God. Not religious, but an experience of regeneration, a changed nature. Whether the old Steve is dead and the new Steve has been born again. Yes, sometimes I go back and I try to dig up the old Steve. And when I do, God convicts me of that, and I quickly bury him again because I hate that guy. Is that what happens in you? Or do we just dig the corpse back up and dance around with him all the time because, hey, it's really all not that bad, and I kind of enjoyed some of the things the corpse did. Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith, whether you're truly saved, whether you're regenerated. Test yourself to prove, try, discern, distinguish yourself. Otherwise, it means that you may be disqualified. Command to test, and then this personal question. Do you not know? This is not gnosko. This is epigonosko. This is a different word. Gnosko means to know by experience. It means to put your favor upon. It means to know um, and perceive and, and have knowledge of. Epigonosko means All of gnosko plus the epi part means in completeness and in fullness. In other words, you know everything there is to know. You've experienced, you know in an experiential way, experiential way, everything there is to experience. Do you not know, to know fully by experience, to gain or receive full knowledge about something, to know all there is to know about something? Do you not know completely, yourself, emphatic, that Jesus Christ is in you, that you are in Christ, that you are in his mystical union, that regeneration has taken place, that you're a child of his, that his spirit bears witness with your spirit, that you're a different person now than you ever were before completely, absolutely completely, just like almost every testimony we see in scripture of those people who come to faith. Do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? And if you don't know, why? Unless the reason why you wouldn't know, indeed you are disqualified. Strange word in the King James. It means that you're a fraud, that your salvation is fraudulent, that you're unapproved, you're unworthy, spurious, worthless, corrupted. It means that salvation is truly not taking place. And the Bible tells us to examine ourselves to make sure that we truly are saved in him. Final point, and I'll close. So what happens when we do get saved? I mean, what should happen when the Holy Spirit comes and and saves us? When I ask people their testimony, um, what, what I'm looking for in them communicating how they came to faith in Jesus Christ, for me, and maybe this is judgmental on my part, what I'm looking for are a few things. Number one, I'm looking for excitement. I'm looking for something of great value to them. You know, hey, I need you to share your testimony on Sunday. Would you like to do that? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't want to tell anybody about how I was regenerated and the Holy Spirit came to live within me and I died and was raised to a newness of life and he, he pulsates and lives within me. No, I don't want to share that with anybody because, what, it didn't happen? I mean, I asked you to share, hey, can you tell us about the uh, promotion that you, hey, can you tell us how you lost all that weight? Hey, can you tell us about what it was like winning the lottery? Tell me about the vacation. You just took, oh yeah, it was great. Hey, tell me about this girl that you met. I know you've got to ask her to tell me about her. Oh, she's wonderful. I can't just, I just can't stop talking about her. 
but not about Christ. I look for some sort of excitement in the, um, in the testimony. And most testimonies I hear, I don't hear that at all. None. It's almost like pulling teeth to talk about a change that took place, assuming it took place in your life, a, a life and death experience where God lives in you. I also look for um, a confession of sin and an earnestness and a surrender. And what I usually ask after that, so, so what's your life like now? What's it like now? Oh, oh, my Christian life? Um, it's okay. I mean, it, it could be better, but, but, but it's okay. Okay? I mean, how, 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 how does it become okay? You know, is, you led anybody to the Lord lately? No, no, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of I'm kind of shy about that. Why? I, I don't know. I'm probably going to say the wrong things. I'm probably going to. You understand what I'm saying? And then you go on Facebook and you look at all the stuff that they talk about and all that. It's like it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. And if you think I'm being judgmental, I had to go through this myself this last week and all these questions I'm asking myself here. And the fact is, the Bible says to test yourself. You're supposed to know people by their fruits, and, and if regeneration hasn't taken place, we're living a cruel, cruel existence right now, trying to be something that we can't be because it only happens by a supernatural impartation of the Holy Spirit in you. It's an experience. doesn't mean you see visions or have you know, warm fuzzies, but it's not like something like, oh, yeah, um, yeah I remember when it happened. Um, I don't, gosh, I don't even know where I was living at the time, but I, I, it, it probably had a big effect on my life. How is that possible? Somebody handed you $10 million or a lottery ticket for $10 million. You didn't think it was worth anything, and all of a sudden Saturday rolled around and did the jackpot, and you realized you had $10 million. You would know exactly where you were. You would know exactly what you were doing. You would know exactly what you did with the money. You would re recount to us the joy. And I couldn't believe it. It was kind of incredible. And, oh, and you had no problem sharing something like that. We would never forget that. This should be far greater. If God truly regenerates you and changes you and lives in you, what kind of lasting effects should that have on your life? How would your life change if it was true? And would others be able to see that change in you? Would your family know that you were different? Would your parents know that you were different? Would your coworkers know that you were different? And what if they didn't? What if there was no difference? I, uh, I read a lot of Christian novels. What I'm reading right now, it's so typical. What I'm reading right now is this person gets radically saved, truly saved. And they have a friend uh, that's, you know, just a buddy of theirs. And he's kind of wild and crazy too, like this guy is. And he gets radically saved. And then he goes, finds his buddy. And he tells his buddy, man, I just gave my life to Jesus Christ. I mean, it was, it was, it was incredible. And the other guy goes, really? So did I two weeks ago. Really? Really? You know, so... The first thing I wanted to do is tell you, and you got saved two weeks ago, and I haven't noticed any change in your life at all, even to the point of me asking, hey, something's different about you. And it's almost like a picture of regeneration and religion. Regeneration, life, and lukewarmness over here. And it's the greatest deception that's happening in the church today. Last verse. I'm going to ask every one of you to do this, to go home and do this. And you know what? If you know if you're if you're a husband, why don't you ask your wife and say, "Hey, um, I'm going to examine myself to see him in the faith." I mean, can you see can you see Christ in me? I mean, you know me better than any. Can you see can you see that I'm saved? Or if you're a kid, ask your parents. I mean, Dad, do you see um do you see a change in my life? Do you see me growing in the likeness of Christ? Or if you're a dad, ask your children, son, um, you know, I gave my life to Christ and I want to live for him. Can you see that in me? Can you see the joy and the excitement and the power and the, the ministry and the, the, all of that? I mean, if we can't, it may be we're keeping the light under a bushel so the world can't see. And it may be that you've fallen prey to the greatest deception ever, that you're holding on to religion and not to a regenerating relationship with Jesus Christ. Examine yourself. 
I'm not examining you. Your spouse isn't examining you. You examine yourself as you are in the faith. Test yourself. Make sure you're in the faith. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? And if not, it may be the fact that you're a fraud, that you believe something that wasn't true, that you are disqualified, unapproved, corrupted. And that's something that you can change today. Amen? Let me pray.